You guys grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be going back to Matthew 6 this morning. If you have one of our study books, uh, I have bad news for you. I am changing the script. Um, we are not going to dependent prayer, which I think is the next sermon. We're going to hopeful prayer, which isn't even in the book. I don't know where you're going to take your notes. Maybe the back cover, okay? Um, this happens, um, and, and when it happens, I just apologize. Um, but we're going, and, and we're going to be looking at, at kind of the same verses that Aaron went over last week, just from a very different angle. Before we get into our text, I want to let you know about another end-of-the-year event that's taking place. I sent out a letter last week to our members and our regular attenders. Many of you received that letter to let you know that we're going to be taking our special end-of-the-year mission offering next Sunday. Uh, we do this every year, and in this offering, we target problems that we want to solve or ways that we want to be generous that are not part of our regular budget, things that we can't give to um, because, because we haven't budgeted for it, but we want to address. And so um, in years past, uh, just to give you a little update, one of, the, one of the things we wanted to address was the ability for our uh, ADA um, family members to be able to join us in worship. This building is obviously uh, was built in the 20s and, and was not designed uh, to accommodate wheelchairs or other forms of, of um, physical challenges. And so two years ago, we took up an offering for uh, a handicap accessible ramp and to change the bathroom on the main floor to an ADA accessible restroom. Uh, just to let you know, we have not been sitting on our hands on that thing. It, take, it has taken literally two years to work through the architectural drawings, the permitting process, the redrawings, the re-permitting processes, um, but that thing is all approved. The door has already been installed. The bathroom's already been remodeled, and that ramp should be in by the end of the month, just to let you know. That is, um, let's, I just, we have had, um, uh, that project is about an $80,000 project, and it is money incredibly well invested because it's going to allow our entire family to gather in worship, um, really for the first time since we've been in this space. My heart hurts because um, there have been family members who, who honestly have been excluded uh, for the last two years because of the challenges of just moving into this space. So this is a, a huge blessing. Um, Clint Doherty, uh, Lori Lauterbach, and others have been driving this project um, for the last two years, um, and, I'm, and I'm incredibly appreciative for those that have kept it on the rails and kept it moving when, when these things so easily get stalled out. Um, but that, is, that was the result of a special offering, right? It was a special offering that equipped us to move toward making that happen. Last year, our special offering went toward the remodel of the kitchen, which took place downstairs, so we could actually have sinks that worked, um, which is a blessing to Trailhead Kids and a blessing to um, our, our setup and teardown team and the coffee team. You're drinking coffee this morning. Hey, great, we have a new kitchen downstairs that helped make that happen. Um, and that was the result of your generosity. We have given tens of thousands of dollars to mission organizations and partnerships. Last year, we gave a $10,000 gift to R3 down in East St. Louis to help them finish a project of remodeling a barn that they're using for uh, large gatherings in East St. Louis. We, we have given money to uh, adoptive and foster care. We have given money to overseas mission works. We, we are investing in Honduras currently, where we have sponsored about 100 um, Compassion International kids, and we're developing relationships with local churches, and we're now partnering with WGO. We have 18 people traveling in March on short-term mission to go into that community to provide medical care while we also visit many of the kids we've sponsored um, and continue our development of, of relationship with local churches in that area. Um, that is, again, you, you guys have donated and you've helped make this happen. Um, your gifts matter. 
right? This special offering makes real and significant impacts. This year, our special offering is going to focus on three things. One, we want to replace the front steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but once I tell you, you will start noticing. Um, They're starting to crumble. They're still currently safe, um, but I'm guessing those steps have seen more traffic over the last two years than they saw in the previous 50. Um, And and as a result, um, they're really starting to show the wear and tear, and it won't be long before they start crumbling. And when they do, it's really going to create an unsafe environment. We need to replace those steps want to raise about $15,000 to replace those steps and the handrails and, and, and just make that safe for our families, for our, and, and honestly, for our kids' families and, and for future generations, uh, those that will continue to gather in this space. Um, we want to invest about $15,000 into our regional partnerships, R3 in East St. Louis, uh, Restore Network with adoptive and foster care support, um, and um, uh, Honduras, continuing to develop and, and invest into that uh, Tegucigalpa, that, that community there. Um, and then we want to uh, raise um, an additional um, $10,000 to go toward short-term mission opportunities. One of the great ways we have the ability to impact the future <laughs> uh, is by investing in people who are exploring the mission now. So a lot of times college students and post-college students have the opportunity to go on short-term mission trips, many of them to East Asia because we have a long-term team on the ground in East Asia that we partner with. Um, and, and we love to help support these folks because while they're having a short-term mission trip experience, that impacts them. Like that experience shapes their view of the world. It shapes their view of mission and their experience of life. And um, God uses that in powerful ways. And we would love to set $10,000 aside to continue investing and to equip um, people to go on those mission trips. That's a total of about $40,000 that we would love to see raised in our end of the year special offering. It's an aggressive goal, but one I think we can achieve. Uh, And so this is what I'm asking you to do. Pray. Let's start there. Pray. Pray that the Lord would move us to generosity so that we can raise the funds so that we can solve these problems and be generous in these ways. And then secondly, pray specifically how God is asking you to be involved. Because the only way we are able to be incredibly generous as a community is if we as individuals embrace the sacrifice of generosity. If we consider, man, how can I give? What is God asking me to do, right? What can I give up to help others be blessed? Because we know that we are blessed when we are a blessing. We know that we are enriched as we enrich others. And so I'm just asking you to join the blessing, right? That's one of the reasons that that I love doing these. There are other ways to raise money. But I think it's actually good for us to join together in generosity, uh, in, in sacrifice, to be a blessing. I think it shapes our community. I think it impacts our hearts. It helps us increase the joy of our experience of grace. And so let's do this, right? Let's, let's pray that God will help us raise the money. Let's pray that specifically how the Lord would have us individually be part of the sacrifice of making that happen, okay? So that's going to be taken next week. That special offering will take place at the end of the service. Um, so we'll take our normal offering at the beginning of the service, which helps fund our, which actually funds our, um, our budgetary expenses, the normal expenses we have from day to day, week to week, month to month. Um, at the end of the service, we're going to take a second special offering that will go toward uh, this, this specific um, issue. And um, and while we take that offering next week, we will continue to receive those gifts through the end of the year. Uh, and so if you, if you know you want to make a gift, you're not able to make it next week, you can j- just let us know. Uh, give us a note to let us know. And, uh, and then um, hope our goal is that you would give it by the end of the year uh, so that we have that offering complete and can move forward with our projects. All right, there we go. That's my announcement um, and my encouragement to prayer. All right, so this week we're going back into... Um, 
Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage from verse 5, and we go through verse 18. Uh, Follow along as I read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week Aaron did a great job unpacking verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and, and, and he focused on the personal uh, uh, application of these verses, right? That, that we begin in our prayer life by approaching God as our Father, right? Who is to be hallowed or reverenced. It speaks of both approaching in intimacy, but also approaching to submit, right? There is a, there is a, a closeness and an intimacy in approaching your Abba, your Father, but there is also a sense of coming of in respect and in awe because He is God, right? The Creator God, the, the one who is uh, supreme over all things, right? And, and so to pray in this way means that we stand before a God who's worthy of worship, but we approach a Father who is worthy of love. And we come with that transcendent experience, and it is deeply personal, right? He is my Father, my Abba. The God of the universe knows me and loves me and invites me to draw near, even as I draw near in awe of of His character, His power, His beauty, and His glory. So it's deeply personal. Now this week, instead of focusing on the deeply personal aspect of these verses, um, we're going we're gonna to move out, right? Last week, Aaron took us on the Google Street View, right? Right there, deep and personal, man, meeting God personally and, and, and learning what it means to approach a father who we want to submit our will to, right? We're going we're gonna to pan back from the Google Street View to the Google st- Satellite View this week and, and take a look at the big picture. How does this apply in, in, a, in a much bigger picture? Because these verses are deeply personal, but they are also profoundly eschatological, what did I just say? Steve, can you even say that word in church? Yes. Um, uh, eschatology is, is the big theological word that simply means the study of end times or the study of end things. Eschatology is the biggest picture in the Bible, right? So when we talk about eschatology, we talk about the picture of, of what God is doing from the beginning all the way to the end. And, and when you hear people starting to talk about the last times, I know there's a lot of weird stuff out there, and, 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 and I don't want to get into the weirdness. That's not the point. Um, the point this morning is that this prayer calls us not just into a consideration of our deep personal relationship with our Father, 
but into a profound understanding that there is a bigger story than ours, right? When Jesus says, pray like this, He's not giving this prayer as something that we're supposed to repeat mindlessly. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to repeat it. I, I want to be clear with that. If you've memorized this prayer and you enjoy repeating this prayer, all power to you, man. Keep doing it. Just do it mindfully, right? It's not something to repeat mindlessly as if somehow through the many words God will hear you. That's the, that's the repetition of empty phrases. If you're praying this prayer mindfully, meditatively, worshipfully, you can repeat it all day long, and it will be deeply meaningful to you, and it will be a real connection with God, right? That, that's fine. But God, Jesus didn't give us this prayer to be repeated as, as a memorized mantra. He gave it to us as a model to be followed, so what he's saying is pray like this, right? So approach God like this, as your intimate Father who is transcendently glorious, right? An Abba who is to be hallowed, right? Approach God, and then when you approach God, the first thing you need to do is pray for His kingdom, not yours. Acknowledge as you approach God that your story is part of a greater story, your kingdom come. Right? So before you get into your, man, here's my list of daily breads, right? right? I'd like a new job, I'd like a better car, right? I'd like my spouse to be nicer to me. Right? Before you get into your list of daily breads, um, you, you, you get into this mindset that there is a story greater than your story. And it's because there is a greater story that your story matters. It's because there's a greater story that there is purpose and meaning in yours. God's telling a story from the beginning of time to the end of time, and your story fits into that story. And what Jesus is telling us is, man, pray. When you begin praying, you need to adopt a mindset that allows you to see not just your kingdom, but His kingdom. Not just your problems, but His plan. Not just your desires, but His solution. Begin with a mindset that places you once again in this beautiful, grand story of redemption and restoration. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to start with a focus on the king. We are to start with a focus on his kingdom and our place in it when we approach God in prayer. So what does this mean, and how do we, you know, we start talking about the kingdom of God. That can get a little bit uh, complicated, honestly. Uh, theologically, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of books written on the kingdom of God, and there are fine theological distinctions that people love to debate. We're not going to do that. Um, I am not interested this morning in, into getting in that. So what I want to do is, is I want to give you a very practical way of approaching and looking at what it means to pray, because a lot of times I think we stumble over this, right? What does that even mean, pray your kingdom comes, right? How, what is that? What am, I, what am I asking for? What am I focusing on? How is that supposed to impact me? How can I do this in a way that it's not just me saying words, but it's me actually entering into an experience and, and responding in a way that I'm being changed in the process? So what I want to do is I want to take a look at what it means to pray for the kingdom of God to come through the lens of the gospel. That's what we're going to do this morning. What does it mean to pray for God's kingdom to come through the lens of the gospel? And then what I want to do is move from there and talk about how that impacts um, where we place our hope. And, and how that hope um, uh, uh, energizes us and strengthens us, okay? So what does it mean to take a look at the kingdom of God 
through the lens of the gospel. Well, I want to put uh, um, six images up on the screen behind me. Many of you are familiar with these. I've used these in the past. If you're new or if you haven't been around, um, I'm going to introduce them to you this morning. Um, but this very simply is, in image form, the story of the gospel, okay? Um, and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. So let me explain. Um, I'm going to go from the personal, and then, and then I'm going to talk about from a biblical or, or eschatological perspective, and then I'm going to move into the kingdom of God. So from a personal level, what we have here are six symbols. The downward arrow uh, indicates creation, right? So on a personal level, that would be the birth of my life. Um, the X indicates uh, the brokenness or the rebellion um, against the source of life. So, so from a personal theological perspective, we recognize that I was, I was born with a, with a bent toward, toward sin. I was born with a bent toward independence from God. That's, that is my inglorious inheritance from my first parents, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm a sinner by birth, but I'm also a sinner by choice, right? I, I, I have chosen sin many, many times, right? And so there's a breaking, and God's response to my rebellion against Him is not to reject me or to crush me. It is not to be angry at me or to hate me. God's response to my rebellion against Him is to promise redemption, that's what that forward arrow indicates. He's pointing me and saying, I promise, I, I'm, I'm going to meet you in your rebellion. And here's what I need you to know. I love you and I promise to redeem you. You're looking for all the things I give and all the places I don't give it. You're looking for, for the fullness of life that I give, but you're trying to get it in all the places I'm not there. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise you a way back. I'm going to promise you that there is a way home. And that there's an invitation waiting for you. And I hear that promise in the gospel that God loves me in spite of my rebellion, in spite of my rejection of him. He has not rejected me and, and he, he initiates toward me. He leans in toward me and invites me. And then, of course, is the next symbol, which is the cross, the work of redemption, to see that he has, in a very real way, worked for, for my salvation. God took on flesh. Right? That's, that's what the incarnation is about, the word incarnation, taking on of flesh. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the celebration of a God, a transcendent God who became imminent in man. He, he took on flesh and he lived the life I should have lived so that he could die the death I deserved to die. Right? He could be my hero by becoming my substitute. He took my place in judgment so that I could once again stand with him in blessing. He did the work of redemption. He stepped into my rebellion for the consequences and weight of it, and then invites me into the benefit of His resurrection. Having paid the price of my sin, He invites me into absolute forgiveness. He invites me to be a new creature, recreated, not because of my work for God, but because of God's work for me in Christ, right? And, then, and when I believe in Christ, that leads to the next stage, which is this, this sending, I receive grace, and I am sent out in grace, right? I am told to drink deeply of grace and to become a representative or an ambassador of grace. I am to drink deeply of grace and share it with others. That's the mission of God, right? When we talk about a mission, end of the year mission offering, that's what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about is, is we've been entrusted the grace of God to be used for the benefit of others because grace finds its power in transition. Grace was never given to us as a treasure to receive and then be hoarded. It was given to us that we might share it with others. I am to receive grace, be transformed by grace, be undone by grace, remade in love, and sent out in that love to bless others as I await the final stage, 
which is the redemption, the full restoration. When once again, so we, we have here two advents, right? The first advent, the cross, is when God comes to save. The second arrow is when God returns to restore. And for me personally, what that means is I am awaiting the redemption of my body. Right? Scripture tells me that I have been redeemed by Christ. I have been forgiven of my sin. I've been made new. I have, I've actually been indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a believer in Christ. These are, all, these are all doctrines that we see in the New Testament as we study about what it means to believe in Jesus. Right? These things are all true. But, but one thing is really, really true. I am awaiting the experience of full redemption. I have not yet experienced it. I wake up every single day still plagued by my parents' first sin and my sin by conflicting desires, by my rebellion against God, by my desire, right? This worldly desire. Worldliness is a word we've used a lot over the last year. Worldliness isn't a problem out there, right? Christians get this wrong and they've ruined it. Uh, It's not the strip clubs and the bad entertainment and the places that offer alcohol and dancing, right? That's, that, that's not worldliness. Worldliness is the human impulse to try to find the fullness of God apart from the presence of God, to find the blessings of God apart from humble dependence on God. Worldliness is my desire to compete with God, to be like God instead of humbly dependent on God, and I struggle with that every day, right? I live in the tension between the two advents. And in this tension, I am redeemed, but I am not yet fully restored, right? That's on a personal level, deeply personal. That's my story. Amazingly, that is also the story of the entire Bible, right? So so when I look at the Bible, what we have here, when you read the Bible in, in drama, history, poetry, didactic teaching, what you find are, are thousands of stories. There's the story of Esther and, and the story of Saul and the story of Ruth and, and the story of David and, and all of these thousands of individual stories. But all of these stories come together to tell a single great story. When you look at the Bible, what you find is that there's a coherent. It is not simply a collection of wise sayings. It is not simply a collection of proverbs. It is not a list of to-dos. It is not a, 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 an advice book on how to live. What you find is a story, a great story that moves from eternity past to eternity future in which God is working through the storyline of redemption. In the beginning, God creates, Right? We find Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man and woman in his image to be the vice regents or the stewards over all of creation, right? They are in his image and they are to bear his image by by exercising their authority for the good of the rest of creation. But instead of doing that, they instead reject God. Genesis chapter 3, in the great rebellion, they reject the presence of God. They walk away from the presence of God. They say, I will not revolve around your glory. I will not live for your will. I will, not, I will not walk in submission to your plan. I will revolve around my glory. I will live for my will. I have a better plan for my life than you do. And I will provide for myself. Instead of humbly depending on you, they rebel against God. And God immediately promises Right? Instead of responding to them by crushing them, rejecting them, uh, uh, hurling them into the abyss... He responds to them with a promise. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, he looks at them and says, there will come a seed of the woman, a son of the woman, who will crush the head of your enemy. 
right? He will be bruised, but he will crush the head of your enemy. He will redeem you. He will restore you. And then God sacrifices animals and covers them with their first set of clothing, which is a powerfully symbolic act, basically saying, I will provide the sacrifice so that you can be reclothed in dignity. And then he repeats that promise throughout the Old Testament through a series of formal covenants. God keeps saying, I will send a hero. I will send, I will send the anointed one. The Savior will come. The Christ will come. And, and there's, we move through the Old Testament through a season of promise until, of course, we have the, the incarnation where Christ comes, who is the one who was promised. Uh, he dies uh, a sacrificial death, um, providing redemption, rises again, and then looks at, at his followers and says, I'm going to take off for a while, right? That's my plan, right? I've just been raised from the dead. I've just undone your cosmic treason against God, and I'm going to take off for a while, but guess what? I'm entrusting you with the power and the message of the gospel, right? So the entire church is left in this season of, of being receiving grace, but being sent with grace. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of this age. We have the tremendous honor and privilege of being in this stage of God's story where we get to receive the benefit of the redemption work of Christ and share it with others. That's why we're still here, but we're awaiting the final return when Christ will come and, and, and will once again be physically present, the king on his throne, meeting with his people, the head of his body. You will see Christ, and he will see you. And he will not come with you with disappointment. He will not come to you with, with, with scales to find out how you... He's going to come to you with a bear hug. He is. You know why? Because, because when you read Scripture, when he comes back, you know what happens? A feast. Right? It's called the, 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 the feast of the bride, right? When, when the bride of Christ, the people of God, once again are reunited with their bridegroom. It is, a, it is a huge celebration in which once again we are reunited with our Savior. That's the story of the Bible from cover to cover, right? All of those thousands of individual stories where, where people are individually experiencing this storyline over and over and over again tell the great story that's telling the same story on a cosmic scale, on an eschatological scale, right? How does this relate to the kingdom of God? I think you can see the kingdom of God was thriving on earth in Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind created in the image of God, walking in the, in the joy of God, their their work had purpose and meaning. They were productive and energetic, using their gifts of, of being created in the image of God for the glory of God. They created, they managed, they were scientists, they were artists, they, 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 they built things, they, they managed things, they, they improved things, they enjoyed things for the glory of God and for the good of one another. They knew what it was to be deeply productive and they knew what it was to enter into deep and profound rest. They knew what it was to work from the love they received, not for the love they hoped for. They knew what it was to, to live in community instead of competition, right? They knew what it was to value one another instead of compete with one another. They knew what it was to lay down their life for one another because they knew the other would lay down their life for them. They knew what it was to be completely accountable 
for their authority, that they have been given an authority by God that was meant to be exercised for the flourishing of life, their life and for the life of those who were dependent upon them, and they exercised that authority with integrity, right? They, they were joyfully accountable for every word they spoke and every tweet they tweeted, right? There, there was no time at which they, they were like embarrassed by, a, oh yeah, I said that one time, now I'm saying something. No, I mean, it was like th- there was an integrity, a wholeness, a strength, There was a flourishing. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. Shalom is the word that means peace, but it means a whole lot more than lack of conflict. It means, it means the fullness and flourishing of life. During this period of time, some theologians say that there was a glorious hum. And what that means is that every bit of, of creation had a note to sing, but all those different notes came together in a, in a beautiful music because they were all tuned to the same uh, note, which was Christ himself, God's glory. There was a glorious hum in creation, right? That's the kingdom of God. And when Adam and Eve, when our first parents rejected the kingdom of God, when they committed cosmic treason, they didn't destroy the kingdom of God. They destroyed their experience of the kingdom of God. And they plunged everything that they were stewards over into the discordant chaos of everyone making their own note, but no longer in harmony because they were no longer tuned to the glory of God, right? It is interesting when when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. That means the kingdom of God is still in existence. (laughs) It is still his kingdom. It is still harmonious. He is still king, and, and there is a realm in which these things still take place, the heavenly realm. We're just not experiencing. We are the rebel nation state that are now in chaos, right? We didn't rob God of his kingdom. We didn't destroy the kingdom. We destroyed our experience of the kingdom. But God has promised through the work of redemption to once again restore that kingdom. When we get to Revelation chapter 21, we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Very, very powerful language that indicates that that the new Jerusalem is in fact the people of God prepared for their their inauguration into the kingdom of God. And, and, And the son of David, the true and eternal son of David, will once again sit on the throne of David. He will actually be the king of his father's kingdom. And we will be his subjects. God's plan is not to destroy the earth and take us to heaven where we're going to play harps, right? That's that's not biblical. When we read the Bible, what we see is that God's intention is to redeem and restore all things he created. There will come a purging, right? There will come a purging of what he has created, but his purpose is not to destroy it, but to purify it. And having purified it, he will once again have a people who live for his glory and live in the glorious hum of shalom. That's the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What it means is that we are to remind ourselves that everything we want, everything we truly want, is actually fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why do you want a new job? Why do you want a meaningful relationship? 
Why do you want that blessing that seems so painful because you don't have it? I'm telling you, the thing that you want is a blessing, right? God gives good gifts, but there is a greater gift in God himself. What you're yearning for will be most truly, fully, and permanently satisfied in the restoration of the kingdom of God. That's what you want. You want to re-experience the shalom of God. You want to experience the glorious hum of creation. You want to have meaningful purpose. You want to be able to put your hand to work that is actually significant and lasting. You want genuine, refreshing rest. You want deep and meaningful relationships. You want community instead of competition. You want to be measured and valued for who you are, not by how you compare to others. You do not want to be limited by your failures. You want to be lifted up in the dignity of love. You crave the kingdom of God. See, what Jesus is telling us is that we need to remind ourselves before we get into our list of of our daily breads, that what we really, really want isn't our daily bread, it is the bread of life. What we really, really want isn't just a new job. It is permanent and significant, meaningful work. What we really want isn't just another vacation, but deep and refreshing contentment and joy. What we really want is not just less conflict. What we want is the flourishing of love. We want the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray this, we are reminding ourselves that our deepest desires will not be satisfied in this world. We're waiting. We are in the tension between the advents. And in this tension, we're living in the already not yet blessing of the kingdom of God. The kingdom's already been inaugurated. It was inaugurated in the resurrection of Christ. The king has been once again uh, honored and recognized over his creation. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son who, who took on flesh and became human, has once again reclaimed the crown. It's his. The battle's already won. There's no battle left to fight. It's already His. It's already done, but we have not yet experienced the fullness of its blessing. It It is already here, but not yet fully realized. It is already won, but not yet fully given. We live in the tension of the already, not yet. And that tension at times, honestly, feels like it will tear us apart. Because we, we, we have this yearning that is not yet fully satisfied, these desires that are not yet fully given the, 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 the fullness of. And, and the more we taste of what we've been given, the more we yearn for what we don't yet have. The more, more we dig into the love that we have in Christ in the gospel, the more it awakens within us these deep and insatiable desires for the very presence of that love. How does this impact us in our prayer life? Three things. When we learn to pray with a kingdom mindset, when we learn to approach God, our Father, the sovereign God, 
and align ourselves with the greater eschatological plan that He has to reestablish His kingdom on earth. When we, when we place ourselves once again in that plan, it impacts our hope in three very critical ways. First of all, it gives you hope for this world, like this world. There are some people who operate with what I would call an under-realized eschatology. In the already not yet tension, they kind of ignore the already part and just focus on the not yet, right? Sometimes that looks like um, uh, an entire church community basically circling the wagons and completely disengaging from culture. We're not going to pay attention to the world. We're not going to try to bless our neighbors. We're not going to try to solve any problems. We're definitely not going to address issues of systemic poverty or racism or, or, or big, big, you know, that, no, 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 no. Jesus will fix all that when he comes back. Right? It is an underrealized eschatology that basically says the kingdom of God is going to come. It's not really here yet, right? So they ignore the already here part. And what it does is it, 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 it undermines their ability to live out the principles of the gospel today, right? I've had literally people tell me, why would you polish the brass on a sinking ship? And what they mean by that is, why do you work so hard to be a blessing to this community? Why do you try to, to reform systems? Why do you try to fix problems? Why do you work for why do you polish the brass on a sinking ship? It's going down, right? Uh, no, it's not going down. God's plan isn't to destroy the earth and leave it behind and give us something new and different, right? The kingdom of God is here, and His plan is to redeem and restore. That gives me hope, right? It gives me hope that what I do here matters. That, that, that as, I, as I live out my kingdom identity as one who is undone by grace and remade in love, as somebody who, who, who um, wants to see others blessed by grace, as I work for justice, that I am in fact working in accordance with the, with the plan of God, that, that His plan is to redeem and restore, that, that there is an echo of my kingdom work here in eternity. I can't bring the kingdom in, right? Because it's already not yet. But it is already here. And here's the thing, it's already here in us, right? Jesus, when he was walking the earth, um, would say things like, the kingdom of God is in your very presence, right? And he even said things like, the kingdom of God suffers violence. You're like, what in the world does that mean? It makes perfect sense when you realize that he is the embodiment of the kingdom of God that where the king is, the kingdom is, right? And, and when he died and rose again, he didn't go away. He inhabited his people. God is with us, church, right? Well, when you become a believer, you're not just an individual who becomes redeemed. You are part of a body that has been redeemed, right? The ecclesia, the Greek word for church, literally means the called out people of God. It's not the building. The building is just where we gather and meet, you have been brought into a people. That's why the prayer begins where it says, our Father in heaven. Not my Father. This isn't an individualistic, isolated, solitary prayer. This is an acknowledgement that I've been brought into a redeemed people of God and that we together are actually living out the initial blessings of the kingdom of God. Listen, you want to make an impact in this world. Work for justice. Work to, to be a blessing to others. 
But do not neglect the greater work, which is actually to be a faithful part of the body of Christ. We are called to be a city within a city, a culture within a culture, a people within a people. We are like a, a we're like, we've been described as, as yeast planted in the bread, right? That's how Jesus describes us. And, 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 and we have our greatest leavening effect in the greater culture around us when we together are experiencing the blessings of the kingdom. People will know you're my disciples by your political activism. That's what he said, right? People will know you're my disciples by how you vote, right? That's what he said. People will know you're my disciples by, no, what did he say? People will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. The sign of the kingdom is the work of grace in the people of God. The greatest impact we can have on our community is by being a vibrant community going deep in grace and being undone by love together. By learning what it means to be the community of God, the body of Christ, the representation of the gospel by going deep in the gospel and walking in the mission that God has entrusted to us. This gives us hope for the world, but it gives us a context for that hope. God's greatest blessing is going to come in this world through the work that he's producing in the people of God. Now, the second thing this does, though, is that it points our hope beyond this world. Right? There's an already not yet tension. So some people have an under-realized eschatology where they ignore the already, other people have an overrealized eschatology where they ignore the not yet, right? They're just like, the kingdom of God is here. And, and that, that's reflected in a number of really bad teachings. One would be the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which basically says you should be healthy all the time, completely wealthy. You're children of the king, after all. You should have everything the king gives you. And if you don't, well, there's a problem with your faith, right? You should be healthy. You should be wise. You should be strong. You should have everything God has given you, right? But that ignores the fact that while the kingdom has been won, it has not yet been fully realized, right? An over-realized eschatology wants to see all the blessings of the kingdom in this age instead of in the age to come. That's also reflected, I think, in many people's activism and in their mindset. They, they want to see the kingdom of God fully realized. They want to see through the, the leveraging of political power and the, the leveraging of, of the mechanisms of this world, a bringing in of a gospel flourishing and a restoration of shalom, and it simply cannot happen. God is not going to bring the kingdom of God back to this world through the worldly systems that are currently in place. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be active in politics. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't allow our, the gospel to influence how we work for the good of others, but it does change where we place our hope. Our hope is not in this world. Our ultimate hope is not in the politics of this world or the, the leveraging structures of this world. Our hope is in the age to come. It is already here, but it is not yet fulfilled. We cannot bring the fullness of the kingdom of God into this world. Now, we can be representatives of it. We can work in love. We can work for justice. We can be, be salt in a dark place, or light in a dark place, and salt in a rotting, in a rotting world. We, we can. But our ultimate hope is in the world to come. And what's going to end up happening is, is the more you wrestle with this, um, 
the more you're going to end up praying Revelation 22.20, even if you don't know you're praying it. Revelation 22.20 is the last prayer of the Bible. That's a very simple prayer. This is come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. Because this world, I don't know, the more you pay attention, the easier it is to either give up hope for the now or just be ready for the tomorrow. This is a dark place. And the more you pay attention, the more you just start to long for the king to return. And that's the third thing this does for us is recenters our hope on our king. Because the more we enter into this prayer, honestly, the more we get focused on Christ, right? It is so easy to get focused on what we want or to get so focused on what we hate. Some of you are, are fixated on, I want this thing, if I could just have this thing. Some of you are fixated on what you hate. If I could just stop this thing, if we could just fix this problem, if we could just eliminate this thing, then everything would be okay. And the reality is every time we solve a problem, we tend to create 10 more. Because in this age, we cannot be Christ. And so we start longing. What it does is it shifts our attention from what we crave in this world to the person who gives what we desire. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God, and His presence is the flourishing and fullness of life. Where He is, there is shalom. His, his reign, His presence brings genuine justice. His reign brings the genuine economy of justice. His, his reign brings genuine productivity and meaning to work and genuine rest and delight um, to, to, to our, our need for rest. He, he it is His love that meets our deepest needs for significance and dignity. He is the one who lifts up the refugee and the outsider and clothes them with dignity and security. He is the one who frees us from our desperate needs for selfish and self-focused security. It awakens our desire for Christ. Come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. Restore your kingdom. We have tasted it and we want more. I can't wait for the king to return and restore the glorious hum of creation. I cannot wait. The more we enter into a prayer with this mindset, the more it's going to allow us to ask for our daily bread without placing our hope in our daily bread the more we're going to be able to ask God to fix the problems of this world without placing our hope in the imaginary saviors who promise to solve the problems they cannot solve, the more it will awaken within us a deep and unsettled joy that takes joy in what Christ has done and has an insatiable appetite for more. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about praying for our daily bread, but that's next week. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that even though we have individually, even though we have as a culture, even though we have throughout all of history rejected your presence, defamed your glory, lied about your intentions, mistrusted your love. 
Lord, instead of being repelled, instead of being offended, instead of being angry, instead of being just in your anger, you move toward us in love. You invite us back to the table of grace. You meet us in the ravings of our pride and quietly invite us back into the sanity of humility. Man, I thank you for that love. I thank you that your plan is to redeem and restore. Your plan is so much more glorious than mine would have ever been. <laughs> your plan is so beautiful. And I cannot wait for the final stage and the final act of this story. What a great privilege it is to live between the advents in this time of tension between what has been done and what will be given. But Lord, it is so easy in this age. I am so weak and so distracted. It is so easy to lose sight of the greater blessings of the gospel and be consumed with the lesser blessings of prosperity, of advancement, of temporary and vainglorious ambitions. And I thank you that there's grace even in that that you continually meet me in my foolishness and invite me back to be covered in your dignity, to experience your love. Or will you awaken our desires this morning? Will you unsettle our joy this morning? Will you give us an appetite that we might be able to pray with genuine sincerity, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys, take a few minutes of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment.